Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Dr. Keisha Moore's ongoing focus on understanding how we can thrive as individuals in a complex society helps her integrate her passion for studying across a wide range of fields, including psychology, sociology, and community organizing. Keisha currently divides her time between working as a professor of sociology, parenting, activism, and building a business in life coaching. In this episode, Keisha will tell us about finding the creativity to frame ideas in the language of specific audiences. Staying productive and balanced, despite a schedule that is never the same from one day to the next, and how it feels to build a side business as a life coach while maintaining a career in academia. Today I'm talking to Dr. Keisha Moore, and she's an educator and a life coach with a background in psychology and sociology and community organizing. Keisha, how are you doing today? I'm fine, David. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be here and have this conversation with you and your audience. Well, thank you for joining me. I was really intrigued by your background because you have worked as an educator and you've transitioned into being a life coach. And you know, that's, that's an interesting change to make. But I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been doing. So as you know, I've been doing lots of things, but I see great continuity amongst all of them because they all allow me to tap into my core life purpose. So I spent 20 years of my life as a researcher and educator. My area of focus has always been on human behavior. And so sometimes I was studying that through psychology, anthropology, sociology. I've done some training around neuroscience and goal setting and always interested in how can we build healthy individuals and then healthy families and healthy communities. So I started out as a psychology major in undergrad and I realized that, you know, we could do all this work to help people become better and self-actualize. But then if we put them in families and communities that aren't healthy, it's going to undermine <laughs> their ability to live that out. And so that's what really moves me into community organizing and into sociology in terms of how can we build communities of people that promote optimal development for all the people that are involved. And so for me, there is a very clear connection between personal development and individual change and social development and social change. And so my life has been around trying to figure out what are the best ways to support that kind of transformation, both on an individual level and on a collective level. I love that you bring the aspect of community into that. I think a lot of people who look at personal psychology and personal coaching look at it like a feather falling inside of a vacuum that is going to fall at, you know, at full speed, just like a ball of cement, but they don't recognize the context that's actually happening around all of us. Yes. And that's what sociologists are known for. Always like, you have to take context into account. Context matters. And, you know, we are social beings. So how we think of ourselves what we think is possible in the world is very much shaped by the environments that we're in. And, 
you know, not just our physical environments, but our social environments, our human environments. And so I'm interested in using the science of human behavior to help us understand how can we create environments that allow people to flourish. And so for psychology, they kind of use the word of self-actualization. In sociology, we use the, the word of flourishing, what allows you to thrive and produce your best work, your contribute your talents and your gifts. And I truly believe that everyone has some amazing gifts inside of them. And if we don't actually help people to develop and share those gifts, then not only is their life limited, but our collective life is less than because we haven't been able to benefit from these unique gifts that are invested in the people around us. And so whatever that means in supporting that, be it you know developing good healthcare facilities, developing good feeding programs, developing good education supports, good government, making sure people are safe, and making sure that everything in our life is designed to allow us to accomplish those great dreams that exist within all of our hearts and minds. So you're looking at it both from this perspective of making sure the institutions are there to support us, but also making sure that we're available to take advantage of those institutions. Exactly. So it's that nexus between the individual and the society that I'm interested in supporting. So what is it in your personal background that inspired you to do this? Because clearly this has been a focus of, of yours since your undergraduate years. It's been something that's been driving you forward. I was born in Philadelphia, so the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And it was such a great experience growing up there in the 80s. And Philadelphia is known as a city of neighborhoods. And so community was very much a core part of my life. I mean, my family is very large, and that was a core part of my life. But we spent a lot of time having block parties and, you know, just having active community life. And it, it helped me to thrive and to flourish. But I also saw at that time, that was kind of when the drug epidemic, like, took over and crime took over and there weren't as many block parties and it wasn't as safe to go out. And so I saw a decline in community participation and I really wondered what was driving that and what are the consequences for the younger kids growing up where they don't have these relationships with people that are intergenerational and that extend beyond their family and they don't necessarily have safe spaces that allow them to feel a part of something much larger than themselves. So trying to understand my own experience, both of what I gained and of what was lost and of how it could be rebuilt was what led me in my undergraduate years to think about how can I create healthy individuals, which started with psychology, but I actually wound up developing my own major because I felt like it's not just about the individual. And so I created a, what I call cross-cultural psychology. And so I had sociology and anthropology in there and it gave me the opportunity to study other societies and learn from them and think about how can we take what we've learned from not just in the U.S. but around the world and use that to consciously, intentionally design a community, both on a local and national and global level, where we all are actually able to thrive. 
Yeah, pulling those things together. Often, often the you know the the static stovepipe fields don't allow you the flexibility to look at all of the intricacy that's involved in human psychology and interaction and the institutions that we work inside of. And I find that when you're, in, I'm an interdisciplinary at heart because I'm interested in understanding people, and people don't come in little boxes like our disciplines arrange them. And so I, I see the value in learning from lots of different disciplines and reading very broadly and all with a focus of trying to understand, you know, this amazing research question that I have. So my parents sometimes wondered if I was a bit confused because every degree that I have not only is in a different institution, but it's actually a different discipline. And they're like, oh, are you, you know, are you confused? Are you changing your mind? I'm like, I'm not changing my mind. I. I have no allegiance to a discipline. I have allegiance to a question and to understanding. And wherever I can go to get that information, that's where I'll go because this question is so compelling. So yeah, that's really what I try even in my coaching clients to encourage people like find your question, the thing that you really want to understand. And it doesn't matter if the boxes are all neat in terms of how other people have packaged them as you pursue them go wherever you need to go in order to get that question answered. And I think that you, you model that in your own life because you've you've certainly gone from you know one career to another career. Can you tell us a little bit about how your career has evolved over the years? Yes. Well, I think of my career as a reflection of who I am. And so I actually don't even think of them as transitions in the sense that I'm not that anymore. Like the same way we talk about our childhood that was what I did at that time, but it's still very much a part of me and how I understand who I am and live. I had the privilege of spending a lot of years working in the nonprofits and I was a community organizer in public housing and I worked with a national affordable housing intermediary and I did lots of tenant rights groups. And because I was interested in this issue of urban poverty and how do we kind of attack it and challenge it. And so that was like a whole eye-opening experience for me and really birthed my thinking about the role of knowledge and action in terms of public policy, in terms of building institutions and, you know, community organizing work. But I, I'm still an intellectual, and so I very much am interested in understanding the questions, not just, like, what do we need to do? And so there was this tension at times in my activist circles where they were like, oh, well, we don't need any more studies. We just need people to act. I'm like, <laughs> well... Yes, we need to act, but we need to make sure that, you know, the actions have integrity, that they're grounded in things that have empirical support that are likely to change people's lives. And I care so much about that, that I want to make sure that those things are married. And so I've always been at the intersection of activists and scholarship. And when I went to um, graduate school at University of Pennsylvania, so at University of Michigan, which is where I did my MSW, is where I got trained by the best community organizers who were totally committed to scholarship as a part of action. That's kind of how I came into Penn thinking, you know, I am an activist scholar. I'm here because I want to understand how we can take what we learned in research and use it in the real world in a way that improves people's lives. I, that's when I learned that that's not actually what all scholars want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what I wanted to do. 
but it's always been what I've wanted to do. And so it was how I shaped my dissertation. So even though I was not actively, you know, working in community development, my dissertation was all around community development, all around what we can do to, you know, build up low income neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And then as I became a college professor, the way that I teach, I teach all kinds of community-based learning courses. I do service learning as a core part. I've done it at every institution I've been in, even when they didn't do it before I arrived, because it's just how I learn and it's how I teach and it's who I am. And I partner with community groups all the time around you know, how I can use the knowledge to support their work. And my life coaching business is actually also around supporting the work of people who are in these industries and giving so much of themselves, but often in ways that aren't sustainable, right? That it leads to burnout, poor health outcomes, lots of stress and poor mental health outcomes. And so I believe so much in the work that they're doing and the people who are doing this work. And I want to use my skills around how do you support healthy functioning to support the men and women, but particularly the women who are constantly giving in this really important way. And I feel like that's another way in which I'm supporting kind of social change by supporting the activists who are doing that. I love how you tie all of those threads together. It makes everything feel very cohesive. But one of the challenges, I know you're, you know, if you're teaching in a major institution, often people with an interdisciplinary background have, have a challenge trying to convince people that they have a serious enough focus on the discipline that they're teaching. Yes, we do. And I tend to hang out with people who are thinking in interdisciplinary ways anyway. So I don't find as much of that challenge. Like I, that's my intellectual home. I'm committed to understanding a question and I'm not, as I said, you know, in allegiance to a particular field or, or discipline. And yeah, I've found that that's been acceptable as long as I can articulate to my colleagues who might not be interested in this kind of area, why my question connects with some of the core questions of our discipline that allows us to have a conversation. So when I'm talking to a sociologist, I can frame my question in very standard sociological terms. I hang out with urban planners all the time. I hang out with human geographers. You know, I hang out with public administration people, with community organizers, with foundations, and with every community. Because I am interdisciplinary, I know the core values of that community, and then I can frame my question and my insight in language that they can understand. But I feel that it's very privileged because I can take what I learn from the human geographers and show that in, you know, my standard sociology colleagues and they're wowed and it's like, oh yeah, all it is is actually talking to some people that you haven't talked to. And the book, The Originals, that's one of the things that the authors talk about, that kind of part of what makes people original and ideas original are these people who exist on the margins, on the edges of multiple conversations and are able to create new ideas and new conversations between different fields that haven't before been in communication. I think that's the advantage that we bring by having a human brain and that we can see those connections that might otherwise not be obvious. Yes. And why not embrace that? Absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned was specifically framing and how you frame your messages. I'm, I'm curious how you learned how to frame these messages for people in these different ways. 
I think it comes from listening. Whenever you're having a conversation, most of the conversation is focused on listening to what's important to the other person. And as you spend that time, then you learn how to communicate what it is that you think and feel in terms that make sense to them in using their language. So when I'm in class, I teach my students that the first beginning of writing a paper, any paper, is around imagining yourself at a cocktail party and you've just walked in and there are people having a conversation. And so you have to sit and listen to what they're talking about before you can say something of relevance. So that's what I try to do. I read very broadly in lots of different disciplines and you know, follow ideas as they move and shift and think about, well, how, how could those ideas help me in the questions I'm interested in and the work that I do? After I've listened for long enough, then I feel a little more brave in terms of putting myself out there and now having the conversation where I can engage those people directly. That listening is, is a part of the process that people sometimes forget about, but they're so anxious to broadcast and share that you know, taking something in and having something valuable to put together and then share back, it's incredibly important. Yes, listening is the number one skill in communication. In leading, we cannot lead people. We are not communicating if we are not listening. So I'm curious, where did you learn that personally? I think it's probably like an onion that I learn and relearn and, and relearn. So personally, I would say being married, I had to learn how to improve my listening skills and practice active listening. And we went to all kinds of like couples support things and they would talk about listening and what it means. So I learned a lot of key skills from that. And then as a community organizer, listening is really half of the job. You know, you start with listening to the people. What are the things that they're concerned about? What are the problems that they think they have? Not what you want to help them fix, because that might not even be what they think the problem is. You always have to start with where the people are. And so that definitely improved my listening skills. And then in my training as a coach, again, it always starts with listening to your client. Who are they? What's important to them? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their struggles? And then how can you come in and support? But you can't offer support if you haven't first listened. So I guess each of those phases of my life have taught me to think differently about listening and help me to improve my listening skills so that they keep going deeper and deeper. And I would put parenting in that too, because yeah, my children have definitely taught me what it means to learn how to listen. And especially when someone isn't necessarily talking in your vocabulary or talking about things that you think are, you know, dramatically important to the world. It's just, it's important to them. And so learning how to stop myself and listen to my daughter tell me like every last Pokemon that is created and what their powers are and their properties and why that's important and like really listening so I can remember it and make comparisons between that and talking about some of the things that, you know, I might want to talk about and speaking in her language has really been an important skill development for me. So I think all these areas of my life teach me how to become a better listener. When you do your your work now, you're currently working with clients as a coach. And I'm really curious about how you brought that into the work that you're doing, because, you know, 
teaching. I can see the association between being a professor and being a coach, but it's not an association I think a lot of people would naturally make in their careers. Yes, it's not. And to be honest, I was a little nervous about launching my business, not in terms of how, you know, the general public would respond, but in terms of how my colleagues would respond, because Mm -hmm. there is that fear that you're not going to be taken seriously if you do things that are associated with like lay people, and we should be focused on very abstract ideas. But as I said, those have never been the colleagues that I really hang around (laughs) and spend time with. So, you know, on some level, it was just like, well, I don't really... I don't have that same value system. And so it doesn't really matter to me, you know, what you think about that. But yeah, the decision to launch my own business and and have it be organized around coaching makes a lot of sense to me because it was consistent with my values around being an educator. And I do so much personal development with my students and mentoring students is one of the joys of being a teacher. And I get to teach them at this stage in their life where they're trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do in the world and and how they can do it. And, you know, being able to kind of help them discover their gifts, being able to help them create plans to allow them to make progress towards that, being able to help them overcome obstacles and bounce back from setbacks, like all of that is very much coaching but with a different population. And so I love that part of teaching. The part that I really don't love is grading. And so (laughs) coaching allows me to do the parts that I love, the teaching, the mentoring, the support without the grading, which is like, woo, and with a different population. And so to me, it fits very well with my whole life. I know there are some people who, when they launch their business, you know, their goal is to leave their other job and just, you know, only do this business and they're trying to get out of their work. I love being an educator. I love teaching. I love being a business owner. So to me, why would I give up something I love? These are both parts of me. They allow me to express myself and my values and add value to the world. And I want to continue doing them both as long as I can until there's something else that I can do that will be of value. It sounds like you discovered the passion for coaching by finding the pieces of your current job that matched that expectation and then found a way to break that out into its own thing and make it make it become a focus. Yes. Yeah. So if you're going to launch a business, it should be around things that you love and it should be around gifts that you have. And for me, I had a privileged position of doing a job that I loved in a job that used a lot of the gifts that I have. And so what I wanted was the experience of, you know, being able to serve people on a more individual level. I wanted the experience of being able to own my own business. That was something that was really important to me. So that I decided to create a business around the things that I'm really good at and that I love to do. And and both of them have a kind of flexibility. I mean, I really do appreciate the schedule that as a college professor I get to have. And so that makes it somewhat easier for me to do both of those things together, as opposed to if I was running a cake business, you know, where I had to be open certain hours, that would be harder. But 
you know, being able to control my time in both of my jobs and being able to structure my business so that it grows with me and with my children as they grow and I can increase the clients I serve or shrink them to make it manageable for me. All of that allows me to be able to really enjoy the work that I do and not feel as so many business owners feel kind of just stressed out by a job that they actually created for themselves. It sounds very ideal and it sounds very well matched to your lifestyle, but it's not the sort of thing that somebody can just say, oh, I'm going to start coaching. And then suddenly the clients appear. I'm curious how you made that happen in your life. Yes. Well, nothing happens just like that. (laughs) Oh, I just decided I'm going to do that. But everything does happen with figuring out, you know, what is the thing that you are created to do and that you're really good at? And then where are some opportunities for you to do that thing? And so my, in launching my own business, I realized that I know a lot about coaching. I went to a coach school, you know, I've got my training hours through that. I know a lot about education. I've been educating, teaching for decades. I've been researching human behavior. I know all of that. What I didn't know a lot about was actually owning and running a business. Mm -hmm. I'd never done that before. And most of my friends were professionals like myself. They were doctors, they're lawyers, they're educators. So they didn't know a lot about that either. And so I surround myself with people who are doing the things that I want to do. So I joined my local chamber of commerce. I started spending time with other coaches, other business owners, and I've learned so much from just that experience. And so I would say to people, you know, when you have something and you're like, I really think I'd like to be able to do this. And, you know, part of it is getting the skill set to do it, but part of it is also creating a social group, a community that's doing the thing that you want to be able to do. And by participating in that, you know, you become like those people and there's so much knowledge and support that's given informally in these communities. And that helps you to reach your goal. That's amazing. You, you applied everything that you know about your background and the association between the individual and the community and the sociology and the psychology and just said, how does that apply to me? And you made it happen in your own life. Well, it sounds so much more organized when you say it. Thank you. <laughs> Well, what did it feel like when you were going through it? Because I mean, that that can be challenging. You know, you're creating something new and there are all those uncertain steps and those hesitations, those questions. I'm curious, what was that process like for you? Yes, there's always uncertainty and it's scary. And, you know, you wonder, can I really do this? Is anyone going to care? or Is everyone going to laugh at me? And so there's a certain amount of learning how to trust your gut in it and really figuring out why I'm doing it. So that's my core motivation. Like once I know why this is important to me and that this is a way for me to express who I am and to do something of service, to add value to the world, then I become less connected to the outcome. And that distance is what allows me to, I think, take that step, that courageous step of kind of going out there and putting myself out there. Because I know at the end of the day, like, I'll be really proud of me because I did something that I value, that I respect, that is congruent with who I am and what I feel called to do in the world. So if there are other people who don't understand or appreciate, like, that's fine because that's where they are. But I'm not going to live my life based on their values and their definitions of success. And so taking that time to really get focused on my purpose is what 
gives me the courage to stand out and do it. And the crazy thing is like most times when you do it, there are people out there who are like, yes, I totally think like you, but you feel like you're the only one just because you haven't opened up your mouth to say, this is what I think, or this is what I want, or wouldn't it be cool if we did this? So yeah, those pleasant surprises are always welcome. I like that. And it sounds to me also like it, it takes a level of personal maturity and mindfulness to be aware that this is where I need to put my attention, even though I'm, I've got this tiny thing right in front of me that's really scary. The bigger picture is out there, and that's where I can put my focus. Yes. Yes. And it is what grows us up into the kind of people that we want to be, right? Like, I don't believe in this fixed mindset of all the intelligence you'll ever have, all the talent you'll ever have, all the confidence you'll ever have is like fixed and you're born with it. You have it or you don't. It's like, no, our brains are actually very dynamic organisms and they grow and they change And that doesn't just stop when we're 18. Like that goes on for the rest of our lives as long as we give ourselves challenging situations to promote that neuroplasticity, that new development in our brains. And so that's true cognitively. It's true emotionally. It's true physically, right? The best way to build muscle is to create a challenging situation. (laughs) And that challenge is going to create the kind of physical outcome that you're looking for. And so I think I'm willing to put myself in challenging situations because I know the situation is going to help me be the kind of person that I want to be. So that's why I do it. That's a great way to frame it for yourself in this case. So when you were building your coaching business, how did you define what your focus was going to be? So I am obsessed with productivity. I always have been. I think when I was a child, I read Cheaper by the Dozen and the father who like he has 12 kids and, you know, he measures like what's the quickest way to wash and if you use shampoo and go left to right. So I've just been obsessed with thinking about how can I do this more quickly? How can I do this better? How can I make life better in whatever way it was? It's just kind of how I think. And then when I got to college and graduate school and all the demands of school, and then I got married, and then it was like, oh, and I have all these service projects that I'm like, how am I going to do all of this? And so then I turned to productivity research as a way to really just figure out how to manage my own life so that I can keep going. I am a researcher at heart, so every time I have a problem, I go to the library. (laughs) That's just what I do. It's where I find answers. It helps me. And so I just read as much as I could get my hands on. And as I was talking with my friends and, you know, they talk about challenges that they had, I could lay out for them. Okay, well, in this book, it says that, you know, you might want to try this. And in this book, you could try this and that. And they were like, this is great. I love talking, having you as my friend because I don't have to read any of those books and I can just talk to you and you would just tell me, you know, what my options are and I can choose something for me. And I was like, well, I'm glad that my obsession can be helpful to you because it helps me. And so as I started working with my own coach and figuring out, you know, how much it helped me and I was thinking, yeah, I'd like to be able to do this for other people. And what I'd really love to be able to work on is productivity and not just productivity so that you can just do more and more and more and like never sleep, 
but productivity so that you can do what is meaningful and important to you so that you can go to bed at night feeling accomplished. Not that everything is done. Everything can't get done, but that you feel like the most important things are done, that I am living my life in a way that has integrity, that I am making my biggest impact and contribution to the world, that I have energy and and healthy relationships to sustain me. So that's my version of productivity. And that's the service that I wanted to help people do. And it sounds like you came to this also from having your own coach. And how did you find your own coach? And how did you find the coaching experience? I love having a coach. It's so helpful in so many different ways. And I've had over the years now multiple coaches for different things that I'm doing in my life and different stages of my life. But I think my first coach, she was speaking at a conference I was at and she is a um, financial coach. She was, you know, talking about our relationship with money and different strategies around how to better manage your money. And it was all just such valuable information. I was writing everything down, had pages of notes. And so at the end, she said, and if you'd like more support, you could work with me individually. And I never thought about that. I was like, hmm. And in my mind, I thought, well, I don't have to work with her because she just gave me all this great information so I can just use this great information. And I thought, you know what, there's a difference between knowing and doing. And I've had this great information before and not really implemented. So let me do something different. And that different choice was so helpful. And it helped me, of course, not just to grab hold of my finances and get them under control, but to unpack all these other areas of my life. Because that's the thing with coaching and with human behavior, right? It's never just about one part of our lives. How we handle money is very much about how we feel about ourselves, the relationships that we have, the kind of work that we do. And so as you start to unpack it, it all comes together. So that's what I think is so fabulous about being a life coach is I don't have to tell people, okay, you know, I know you came to me just to work on launching your business. So I don't want to hear about your relationship with your kids or we're not going to talk about, you know, how you feel like all of you is here. And we talk about all of those things and all of those things feed into you being your best self and being able to make your biggest contribution to the world. Because when we're stressed, when we're worried we're not performing our best. I don't care if, you know, it's like, okay, well now it's nine o'clock and I'm at work and I'm just not going to think about those things. Those things affect how we approach work and it affects our health. And so I just appreciate being able to work around all of the parts of people's lives. Now, you bring a unique perspective to this because not all people who put themselves out there as life coaches also have degrees in psychology. I'm curious, it feels like there's almost a clinical aspect to this in addition to the practical aspect you're discussing. Yes. Well, I love research. That's what I do. And so, you know, I've read a lot of the not just self-help books, but the actual psychological literature on learned helplessness, bias of action, the neuroscience around brain plasticity. And so I'm fascinated with the science of how do we help people, you know, perform at their best? And how do we do that both by shaping how individuals think and behave within themselves as individuals and by shaping how they interact 
with other individuals, groups, and institutions. So because this is what I know, this is what I've been studying for 20 years, of course, it infuses into my work. So I always have a much broader perspective of the person that I'm working with. And it's not just about whatever the latest self-help fad is. It's actually always grounded in human behavior research. I have to kind of watch myself because sometimes I can kind of geek out on, I love this science so much and I want to talk about all the studies and I promise myself, okay, I'm only going to do one study per concept, but I would love to be able to present more of it. And in academia, particularly in psychology, you can do a little bit of that, but in sociology, there isn't as much of an opportunity to talk about how this research that we just read and talked about, how do we then translate that to supporting this person who's sitting right here? And that's what, you know, my teaching through my coaching practice enables me to do. Of course, being a life coach gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of the way you structure your business. Did you think about going in the direction of being more of a clinical therapist? You know, before I went to college, my girlfriend and I, we were going to be psychologists and we were going to have our own practice together and have a tall office building with green plexiglass windows. And we were going to like get married and have children at separate times so we can, you know, I can watch the business while she's off having her kids. So I had this all figured out. You know, I definitely thought that a psychologist would be the route that I would go But the more I got into psychology, I found it limiting in terms of it was so individualistic. And I really am focused on this nexus of the individual and the community. And I really want to create social change. Like I am an activist at heart. It's who I am. Coaching provides me with the way and the way that I've structured my coaching business and that a lot of The people that I choose to work with are people who want to accomplish great good in the world. So I'm not just working with them around, this is how you're going to make a lot of money, or this is how you're going to get, you know, that person to marry you. Like those things might happen in their appropriate goals, but really there's something that they want to do and to create and that what they're going to create has great value. And that's what changes our world. So even in my coaching, I'm selecting people who are like me and around kind of creating some great value for others. And those are the people that excite me about working. How do those people find you? I'm I'm curious because as we were talking before about how you build up a coaching practice out of I want to be a coach to actually having clients and having a practice. Yeah, it's a journey. (laughs) So I think the fact that I'm very selective in who I work with, and I think that every coach should, because when you're with people that you like and respect, like they help you to do your best work. And so, you know, you can't really be of maximum service to people if they're not your people. And so I've found that the best way to find my people is to just be me and be me out there in all of these places. And as people hear the message and they're your people, they come to you like draws like. And so, as I said, even around the interdisciplinary, you know, when I talk the way that I talk about my research, my life, my world, it draws people to me who see the world similarly. And then since we have a similar worldview 
and similar values, you know, we're able to work together in a way that isn't conflictual. I don't have to argue with you about why I should be reading outside of sociology to answer this question. You already get it. And, and so I think it's like that in building our coaching practice as well. And since coaching is so personal that, you know, the best way to build your practice is to really take that step and share who you are with the world. And that will draw people to you who share your worldview. So how are you sharing that? And how are, how are people finding you? I've been sharing it in lots of different ways. I was just talking with someone earlier around, you know, I've been doing these video teachings and I was posting them on YouTube. And then I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. I think I might want to do an audio podcast. And so I'm kind of doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But my my current strategy is really around doing a lot of public speaking when I'm invited and talking with people around work-life balance, talking with people around how to get unstuck when you're feeling stuck. I have an upcoming webinar that I'm doing on procrastination and then a productivity summit that I'm doing live. And I also have my monthly blog and then my weekly newsletter. Those have been ways that I've been like trying to share my ideas with the world. These are the things that I've learned from my research, from my experience, from my practice. Here's how I think it might help you. And then when people see that, you know, if they feel like that's helpful, then they usually kind of subscribe to my newsletter or sign up for some free download And that begins a conversation where we can continue to see how we might be able to work together. And it's a challenging process. I know that that sort of thing builds slowly over time and you you end up finding your people. Yes. (laughs) And you try lots of different things. And some of them work in the sense that you want to keep continuing doing them. And some of them work in the sense that I've decided, yeah, I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But I learned something and I got some new skills and I got some feedback and I'm going to take what I've learned and apply it in a different way. So I like it. Those are both ways of working. Even if it turns out not to be the thing you want to do, you learn something. Yes, yes. I am all about learning. And yeah, failure is not the end. It is just a part of the process. It is feedback that then we use to plan for our next move. So I have to ask you, you do so much. You've got so many things going on. And productivity is your shtick. That's that's what you're into. How do you organize your own routine? How do you get so much done? Yes. Well, I do have a routine. So like you said, I love systems. I'm a routine kind of girl. I mean, I like to shake it up probably in other areas of my life, but not really around time management. And so I have my morning routine and my evening routine, which are kind of bookmarks to my day. And since, you know, I have my own business and I teach, it means that my day is never the same. Like I don't have two days that are the same. And so those two bookends of routines really help center me and keep me grounded and focused. And so in my morning routine, I wake up at 5.30, I do 30 minutes of meditation. Then at six, I go and I do my exercise, usually for about 30 minutes. And then I have my breakfast smoothie, get my kids ready for school and off to school. And then I do my... Um, morning affirmations. Like right after I get out of the shower, I do my affirmations of my life purpose and what I'm here to do. And, you know, I really want to greet the day with being grounded in this is who I am. This is what I have to give. I'm really excited about it. 
I have time of like a morning devotional time and I practice my gratitude journaling during that time. So my mornings are all like very private and quiet moments for me to prepare me for my day, which is all over the place, interacting with a whole lot of people. And in terms of when I start work, so I usually start working around nine. When I start work, I always reserve hopefully the first two hours. Sometimes I can't do that. So sometimes it's the first hour for my serious work time, my deep work. And so I don't check my email when I get to work. I don't return phone calls like that time, everything, my internet, everything is shut off. And that's where I'm doing the hardest part of my job, the thinking part of my job. So that might be writing, it might be planning something, but yeah, it's where I need to have focused attention. And after that, I usually have lots and lots of meetings that I kind of cycle in and out of, but I reserve, you know, that time. I do my emails in chunks. I try to only do about 30 minutes of email a day, and I break that up into three 10-minute chunks. And so never at the morning, like the first thing in the morning, but I might check it around 11. I might check it again around like 2 And then maybe at five or maybe at seven, like after dinner to prepare for the next day. But email is something that can like suck up all of your time. And so I really try to kind of put limits, you know, on that. And then my kids help me with my evening routine because they need to be in bed at a certain time, which means I need to (laughs) shut down and get ready for bed at a certain time. And so we have a a lovely bedtime ritual that we enjoy and kind of lay in bed together and say our prayers and talk about our day and what we want for tomorrow. And so that kind of is my cue that gets me back into my more quiet space. And after I've tucked them in, then, you know, I'll go kind of look over my calendar for the next day, look over my finances, write out my budget, and then maybe just do some reading or call a friend. Like I try not to do any social media, any computer stuff, you know, to kind of mess with your eyes, upset your sleeping schedule. And then I'm, I really am in bed by 10 o'clock. I don't stay up late. I'm not a, a night bird. And I love sleep. Like sleep is for me a free vacation. So I am not one of these people who are tempted. Oh, let me just stay up and do one more thing. Like 10 o'clock, I'm out. So one of the things that you mentioned is you do a lot of reading. And I'm very curious, you know, whom are you reading? Who, who are the influences in your life? I read pretty broadly because that's kind of who I am. So right now, in terms of the self-help book, I'm reading this book called The Five-Second Rule, but it's a fabulous book around, you know, changing your life in five seconds. But it's really all around, you know, how do you create behaviors that actually interrupt your default pattern? And set yourself up at creating a starting ritual to start a new habit. So habits is kind of one of the things that, you know, I totally love. So that's my thing. So I'm reading that. I'm also reading a sociology book on it called Evicted, which is around how the process of people getting losing their housing and how much of it is really around like very small bits of money that eventually put individuals and families in the cycle of homelessness and, you know, what we can do to avoid that. So that's kind of, you know, another thing that I'm reading. And I'm also for class reading about the Journal of International Sociology had an issue that was on global inequalities 
and race, class, and gender, and nationality. And so there, it's just empirical research from all of these different scholars around how this looks, you know, over different countries. So yeah, I guess that's my reading list that I read <laughs> very different things, but they all exist within me <laughs> because they're kind of, oh, and I read a business book. I just finished that on business development and, and creating product launches. So that so those are kind of my general reading areas. I read around housing, homelessness, I read around personal development, I read around business development, and then around kind of global international issues. You've carved out such a distinctive life for yourself. I'm curious if there are any people that you would think of as role models for the type of life that you're leading. Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing around my role model, I know this sounds so cliche, but I have to say this. It really is my mother. My mother is not an academic. She's not a life coach. She's not a community organizer, but she's an amazing woman who has modeled for me both in her own life and what she's taught me that really you don't, you shouldn't expect life to be easy. Life is not going to be easy, but you are equipped to rise to the occasion and handle any challenge that life throws at you. And it is most important that you show up and that you are who you are. Don't shrink from the task face it head on and and have integrity, like be yourself as you go through that. And that's what I've seen her live out, you know, in the time that my mother decided to go back and get her education. She was already a wife and a mother and was working and going to school at the same time. And, you know, so I kind of grew up watching her balance all of these things. And I knew it wasn't easy, but she never complained. And she just approached it and like, this is just what life is. And she's also, you know, a two-time survivor of breast cancer. And every year for Mother's Day, I get the, my favorite Mother's Day tradition is walking in the Race for the Cure walk in Philadelphia. It's always on Mother's Day. And you get to write who you're walking in celebration of or in honor of. And so I get to write my mom's name on it. And I put the little card in her card. It just reminds me that, you know, it is not easy, but she's faced it with such courage. And she has developed such beauty from even the scars of life. So whenever I'm facing whatever challenge it is that I'm facing, it's like I'm not the first person that this has ever happened to. And I can approach this challenge with dignity, with love, and with courage, like the women that have gone before me. And yeah, that kind of helps me show up and and go out and do it. And so I think that so many times, you know, we think about heroes or sheroes as people who've done, you know, great acts and it's on television or people write books about them. And that's fabulous. But like living every day, getting up and going to work, getting up and, and serving in your community or parenting, that takes great acts of courage and patience and love. Yeah, I've been able to see people around me do that. And those are the things that inspire me to get up and do it for the other people who are watching me. That is a very inspiring role model story. And I I think we're probably going to find a number of our listeners out here will have resonated with what you've been talking about. How can people find you and find out more about your practice? Oh, great. Well, I would love to engage whoever in your audience might like to have a conversation with me. So you can email me directly at Keisha Moore at your life 
infocuscoach.com. You can also visit my website, which is www.yourlifeinfocus.com. So those are the best ways. I'm on Facebook, Life in Focus Coaching, Twitter as Keisha Moore. No, at Coach Keisha is my Twitter handle. (laughs) And yeah, I think those are my main sources. But I'd love to have conversations more with people and see how we can uh, support each other in our social revolution. Well, thank you so much for showing up and for being here and for sharing so much of yourself with with our listeners. Thank you for inviting me. This has been great. I've loved talking with you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>